Welcome to the Sugar Science Podcast, where our mission is to highlight and connect researchers in the type 1 diabetes space. I'm Monica Wesley, your host for today's podcast. And today I have the distinct pleasure of speaking with uh, Dr. Noel G. Morgan. Noel began his research career studying islet biology at the University of Leicester, and then he undertook postdoctoral work on the hormonal control of liver glycogenolysis, that's a big mouthful, at Vanderbilt University in Tennessee. He subsequently developed an independent research program in islet biology while on the faculty of Keele University in the UK, and he was awarded the inaugural Albert E. Renoid Fellowship of EASD in 1990 to work in the laboratory of Robert Lefkowitz, who actually was a 2012 Nobel laureate at Duke um, University in North Carolina. They were studying the adrenoreceptor signaling in uh, beta cells, and he was appointed to a personal chair at Keele University in 1993 and moved to University of Exeter in uh, 2002 as professor of endocrine pharmacology at Exeter. His group has pursued parallel studies on signaling mechanisms regulating beta cell function and viability, as well as factors that underlie the loss of beta cells in type one diabetes. In 2017, Noel was awarded the prestigious Dorothy Hodgkin leadership lectureship by the Diabetes UK in recognition of his work. And he currently, he currently is a professor uh, at the Institute of Biomedical and Clinical Science at the University of Exeter Medical School. Thank you so much for joining us. I can't wait to talk about your really great paper, uh, Footprints of Immune Cells in the Pancreas in Type 1 Diabetes, to be or not to be? Is that still the question? Welcome. Well, thank you, Monica. And uh, it's a delight to join you. And thank you for that kind introduction and the invitation. I shall look forward to our conversation. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I wanted to see if you could just do a little, you know, highlight your career in the sort of the space of type one diabetes research and give us a brief, um, you know, history of your interest in type one diabetes. Yeah, sure. We've had a long-term interest in the viability of pancreatic beta cells and the things that control those. And I guess it's as long ago now as the 1990s, we were interested in the FAS receptor and FAS, the FAS system as a potential regulator of beta cell death. And it became clear that that might have some uh, context in type 1 diabetes. Agents such as interleukin 1-beta upregulate FAS on the beta cell. And so we published some work exploring that and then were contacted by a colleague from Glasgow, Alan Fowlis, who had put together a collection of pancreas samples from young children who sadly had died of type 1 diabetes and asked us if we'd be interested in looking at apoptotic mechanisms in this tissue. Um, And that had really never been done before. And that really stimulated our interest in how type 1 diabetes develops. Um, It was clear in looking at the literature that people hadn't investigated this to a great extent at all. And there were all kinds of ideas floating around. And so we decided from that point to try and, you know, make a contribution. And that's what we've been doing, focusing on trying to understand how the beta cells are targeted, how do they die, and how we might therefore intervene to stop that happening in susceptible individuals. And I guess it's now, well, longer than 20 years we've been doing that. 
Yeah, and that's fantastic. I mean, I think that um, it was great you uncovered this question and started to really kind of pay it some needed attention. And what's going on? Sort of that's the history of uh, you know your your background in uh, type one diabetes research. What's going on in your lab at Exer now? And can you tell us a little bit about EADB? Yeah, indeed. Um, EADB is uh, our acronym for the Exeter Archival Diabetes Biobank. And that is, in fact, the collection of pancreas samples that I referred to a few moments ago that were first made by our colleague, uh, Alan Fowlis. And now we hold the collection in Exeter. And it's a really unique collection. Um, they are sam samples of pancreas that come from children who died very soon after diagnosis of type 1. And we have about 150 such samples, and that makes them the biggest collection in the world by a long way. And more importantly still, most of them are from um, children of very recent onset, within weeks to months of the onset of the illness. So what that allows us to do is to look in the pancreas sections and to study the ongoing process close to when it, the action is still happening. One of the problems that there has been in the field is that gaining access to the pancreas, of course, is something you can usually only do much later, long after the disease has um, been manifest. So these samples allow us to watch the ongoing process and we can see islets at all stages of destruction, some that are completely finished others have, uh, look very normal and everything in between. And so we've been using that as a key resource and studying a whole range of things. We've been looking at the immune cells that infiltrate the insulitis, trying to understand which cells are there, what order they might arrive in, and so on. We've been interested in the processes that are triggered and particularly in interferon signaling. And one of the reasons for that is that another major interest has been in a possible viral etiology. So we've been looking for markers of viral infection, um, particularly enteroviral um, proteins that might be present in the islet cells and relating those to the ongoing autoimmunity. And so we've got a whole range of projects which really encompass those areas um, and lead out from them. One of the great things about being at Exeter as a basic scientist is that we've got a great clinical team too who are keen to translate um, in both directions from the bench to the patient and back again to understand the disease. So we've been able to collaborate effectively with our clinical colleagues to understand whether what we see in the pancreas has resonance with what's happening in, in the patient. And that's a, a kind of fantastic opportunity. Yeah, I would agree that when you can have that intersection, a close intersection between the clinical and the um, academic, uh, you know, bench research is really important. And it, it has um, purchase on both sides. So it's really, um, it's really great to see that you have that at Exeter. And I wondered, you know, with the EADB, is that collection only available to those at Exeter or do, is it widely available? It's, it's curated 
by ourselves. And um, we're certainly eager to collaborate and have done extensively with people around the world to access it. Um, one of the difficulties of the samples is because they are mostly autopsy tissue. They're not that easy to handle. So we usually suggest that we try to do things collaboratively rather than simply making sections available, partly because that is efficient use because we know how to handle them because they've been fixed in different ways in non-standardized methods. And um, so, yes, the, the short answer is we're eager to collaborate and we have done extensively. Um, but we do that in a kind of careful and structured way to get best use from the tissue, which, of course, is a limited and, as I said earlier, relatively unique resource. Yeah. And I also wonder now with this sort of, um, you know, is this a, a repository that's continuing to grow or is it sort of a stationary repository? Yeah, that's an important question. In an ideal world, one would say that it's continuing to grow. But in practice, that's really not the case. And the reason, of course, is because, thankfully, children now very rarely die close to onset of type one because of you know vast improvements in clinical practice and our understanding and therapy so really it's very difficult now to gain access to such samples and that's what makes it such a precious resource and pays tribute indeed to Alan Fowlis who collected it and, and that wasn't a trivial task when he set about it and um, Alan when he retired several years ago, um, made the co entire collection available to us, and uh, we're doing our best to exploit its potential to the full. Yeah, that's fantastic, and um, you know, it's it's you know, it's it's terrible that it had to happen, but and it is uh, it's good that it's not uh, you know continuing to happen, but Indeed. it is good that there is that resource and probably can give a lot of information about the, you know, as you said, the recent onset and the progression. Let's talk about the paper a little bit. Um, the newest paper, basically, in a nutshell, was a kind of a cheeky little title. I liked it. Footprints of immune cells in the pancreas in type 1 diabetes to be or not to be. Is that still the question? It was in Frontiers Endo, 25 February uh, 2021. Uh, P Elite was another I hope I said that right, another author, um, and the Exeter Center for Excellence in Diabetes, or XSEED. So do you want to sort of run us through uh, like a little thumbnail sketch of what your findings were? Yeah, I'll try to do that. Thanks. Yeah, and it's a credit to, to Pia, indeed, um, that we have embarked on this work. Um, it emerged out of our studies of the immune cells that are infiltrating the islets in the insulitis. Um, and what we observed, oh, probably more than 10 years ago now, is a surprising observation that in addition to the kind of classical view that was held that there are CD8 positive T cells that probably are mediating the beta cell destruction, that certainly in some individuals, there are also very large numbers of B cells infiltrating the islets. Um, and what PIA was able to do was to look extensively across our collection and really divide the patients in, into two groups, those who had a lot of B cells together with the CD8s 
and those who did not. So the important one important point is that they all have CD8s. It's really the B cells that differ. And she made the striking observation that um, this segregation um, is really mediated or, or it goes along with age at diagnosis. So the youngest children are the ones who have all the B cells present, whereas older children at diagnosis tend not to. So we were able indeed to sort of delineate a time window over which this happens. And at all, in all the samples we've looked in, anyone who was diagnosed under the age of seven always had loads of B cells and a very heavy or more a more florid infiltration. Those and, who and, are oh sorry sorry good no just, you go ahead sorry just to qualify when we're talking about the B cells we're talking in this younger population we're talking about B lymphocytes and those B lymphocytes also had a marker correct that was kind of unique um, yes we were looking we were using a marker for B lymphocytes which is called CD20 which is a surface marker that they express and one of the surprising features I think we found early on is that this is present because it's certainly our understanding that CD20 tends to be downregulated as B cells produce uh, or switch into an antibody producing um, plasma cell. And they also begin then to express another marker, CD138. So these B cells that are in the islets are apparently not antibody producers. They still retain CD20 and they don't have much CD138. That's so weird. It's like, what are they doing there? Indeed. And one of the key questions that we've wanted to address and still want to address is, you know, what kind of cells are these? What subtype of B cells are they? Um, and what markers should we use? And I'm keen to hear from others about if they have ideas. We've talked to a lot of people about trying to understand this subset of B cells that are present in the islets. And uh, that's still a fruitful area that we don't know a lot about. Um, so if, oh, yeah, sorry. go on. I was just going to say, you also noticed some really strange um, morphology in the germinal centers, um, and maybe we can discuss that a teeny bit. Yes, we, we did. Um, we noticed that it, certainly in um, recent onset cases, there was disruption to the pancreatic lymph node germinal centers, um, and that they were not present in the kinds of numbers we expected. They were decreased. And that was an entirely unexpected observation. It didn't persist so that in patients with longer duration disease, they seem to um, reappear. So it, it, appear, it appears to be a, a phenomenon that's associated with a recent onset. And again, we don't really understand what that means or why the germinal centers are being disrupted. But together with the observation that the B cells that are present in the islets, and we don't know, exactly what route they've taken to get there. But the fact that they're not 
sort of classic antibody producing cells suggests there's something unusual about the way B cells are being handled and processed um, in the pancreas under these circumstances. And it seems to me that there's still a lot we need to learn and understand um, in order to get to grips with what all this means. And it me seems to mean more in the very younger children than it does in those who are older, since they can um, they seem not to have though that abundance of B cells in there. Although it would be curious, I guess, to see, you know, there's this whole idea now of, of, of presentation of the first autoantibody and then some children go into remission um, and yep. then maybe there's a presentation of another autoantigen and then again, more remission and then final presentation. So it would be really interesting, wouldn't it, to um, you know map that out in terms of what the B cells are doing, if, if you could. Um, to see, you know, if there is any, I mean, maybe at the very first onset of the autoantigen um, in those that, you know, present later in life, maybe there is some kind of beta cell activity that's reminiscent of, of, of what you're seeing in the young kids that actually really go right to T1D. I mean, it's, who knows? It's very interesting. I wonder also with the, you know, is it, I think there's about 20, um, you know, lymph, pancreatic lymph nodes Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah, I think it may be as many as 50 in some individuals, to be truthful. So it's certainly wow. a large number. Yeah. And were you able to see that fourfold reduction in B cell follicles in uh, germinal centers uh, in, in the majority of the nodes or just some or how did that look? Um, no, we couldn't. We couldn't address that question because one of the things that I guess I should explain about the, the biobank is that we have very few blocks of tissue, so we don't have access to the whole pancreas. We only have access to specific um, blocks from with any given individual. So we're not able to examine the whole gamut of possibilities across the whole of the tissue. Um, we have to focus on those that are available. Um, nonetheless, the fact that we, the sections or the blocks that we have are randomly selected um, from across a whole range of patients. So the likelihood that there's some systematic bias is extremely minimal, but nonetheless, we can't examine every single individual in detail. And that's certainly a, um, an issue that we need to think about. And we do think about yeah, that's an important point, but, you know, and, you know, uh, it still indicates, you know, the work still indicates that this is a, is, um, a real finding. Um, Indeed. And I wanted to, I mean, is there anything else you wanted to sort of touch on in the from the paper, the idea that there's two endotypes now. Yeah, I think that that's quite an important point and in a sense follows directly from what we've just been saying. Um, what uh, Pia was able to do was to relate both the immune profiles with another phenomenon we were studying, which was pro-insulin processing by the beta cells. And we found to our surprise that that was very aberrant in the youngest children and much less so in those who are older at diagnosis. And there's another feature that surprised us, and that is that the number of islets that are left that have insulin still present is much 
there are many more of them in the older children than we expected to find. So some children seem to get type 1 diabetes when they've still got lots of insulin-containing islets present. And that would suggest that in some children, there's maybe a secretory defect as well as a targeting of the cells for death. Whereas in the younger children, they effectively wipe out the islets very soon after disease progression. And that's consistent with some other clinical studies that we've been doing. Um, a PhD student, Alice Carr, in the lab has been looking at um, serum C-peptide levels and showing that in the very youngest children, they decline and are lost probably within a year of diagnosis frequently. And that correlates with what we find about the islet destruction. But in those who are older, there's retention of C-peptide for longer and apparently insulin-containing islets that are still there as well. So we define these two endotypes of type 1 diabetes, which we believe are sort of genuinely etiologically different. The mechanisms that are causing the illness are different in younger versus older children. And that therefore has really important implications for therapeutic um, considerations. Um, and hence, we termed the paper to be or not to be on the assumption that the B cells that might be doing there are doing something important in one case, if not the other. That's so, yeah, it's a very important finding. There's been a lot of smoking guns for a while that, you know, there's such a heterogeneity in, in terms of the presentation of the disease and even its, um, its course, you know, how it's... Um, how yep. it progresses, you know, whether there's some, the patchiness of it or in sort of you're yeah. inferring here that like, yeah, the patchiness you see in some of these individuals with some kind of re retention of functional islets, maybe those are, maybe, you know, maybe those came um, from uh, patients or who got diabetes later in life. I mean, this really needs to be sorted out. And mm -hmm. um I guess I wonder, you know, is there a difference in the, and I just don't know this, is there a difference in the honeymoon period for those that are diagnosed early versus late? Yes, there is. Um, and I say that only on the basis of talking with clinicians who deal particularly with very young children who tell me that it's relatively rare to see a honeymoon period in very young children. Um, it tends to be those who are older who have it. And that would, again, be consistent with what we see in the pancreas, that there's rapid and extensive islet destruction in those who are at the youngest ages, which presumably leaves no gap for a honeymoon period. Whereas when you're a bit older, and maybe it's the immune system that's changing, um, as well as other developmental changes, there are islets left that can somehow be um, revived, if only temporarily. And maybe if we could do that in the longer term, you know, the honeymoon period could be extended still further. Yeah. Yeah, the idea of extending sort of the honeymoon or AKA, you know, sort of the remission yeah. would be um, important. And, um, you know, uh, the teplumazab data is showing Absolutely. some, some uh, purchase there. So that's great. Yeah, I wanted indeed. to talk a little bit about, um, you know, the first autoantibody in many patients is GAD. 
And I, I think that, that we discussed it a little offline that that's often the first autoantibody in older patients versus younger. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? Yeah, that's my understanding. Yeah, those who are younger tend to have insulin antibodies as the first antibody, um, whereas GAD tends to be associated with a slightly older age at onset. They don't map entirely onto the two endotypes that we've looked at, and we've obviously thought carefully about that. But broadly speaking, there's an age difference in which is the first antibody. Yeah. And I think, um, so just sort of a total thought experiment here, you know, um, if yeah. these sort of B cells, you know, that you're, that you're finding these sort of strange B cells that you're finding in the islet, um, I, I'm just wondering, you know, there is a, there is a large produce, production of GABA, uh, GABA, sorry, by the, by the microbiome in the gut. And then at onset of um, type 1 diabetes, particularly in adolescents, there is a die-off of um, many of those bacteria. Um, and there's a change in diversity of the gut of the microbiome. And a lot of people are looking at this. But one thing that's kind of interesting is, you know, if bacteria are in the gut and they are making a GABA, they must use GAD, the antibody GAD. And so if if something kills them or something happens to them, apoptosis, whatever, GAD is released, could B cells, you know, that are sort of like just, uh, you know, in the pyres patches, whatever, react to GAD in the gut first, then migrate to the pancreatic lymph node to present, sort of acting as a deputized APC to the CD8 Ts. Uh, could, could there be something like that happening? Maybe that's why these B cells, are, they haven't sort of morphed into their plasma cells yet. They're just sort of deputized. I don't know. I'm just sort of throwing this out there. I wanted <laughs> yeah. to hear your um, impression as a, you know, as a professional. Well, I think that's a really interesting idea. One of the things that I think we really don't understand at all is why certain proteins are targeted as autoantigens in particular. I mean, I guess insulin's a pretty obvious one. Most of the others are secretory granule proteins, but GAD, of course, is not. So in a sense, it's atypical compared to the other proteins that are autoantigens, which suggests there must be something unusual about it. Um, the islet form is slightly different from the neuronal form, um, but broadly speaking, they're, they're the similar enzymes. And I think your idea about uh, gut involvement is certainly an interesting one, especially given the increasing evidence that microbiome may have an influence on autoimmunity. Whether it's by the mechanism you suggest, I, I really find it hard to say. There have been suggestions too that microbes might migrate bacteria indeed up the pancreatic duct and somehow access the pancreas by that route. Um, so whether there are you know, options there for antigen presentation, um, I, I'm not sure. But, but I think that's a, an interesting concept that you raise. And it would be interesting to maybe understand a little more about the epitopes of GAB GAD that might be present in bacterial forms compared to the mammalian ones um, in, in relation to antibody generation, whether some are more antigenic epitopes. Um, so thanks for raising that. Oh, yeah. And I've just something I sort of think about. But I also wonder, you know, <clears throat> if you guys have thought about, I mean, wouldn't it be interesting to be able to tag your 
your B cells, your B lymphocytes that show up at the islet and, and with a homing device, like where, where did they come from? Did they come from <laughs> the, the Peyer's patch or did they come from, were they just kind of hanging out in the pancreatic lymph node or where are they coming from? Yeah, absolutely. And that's a key question that we would like to know the answer to. And uh, of course, we can't track um, cells in that kind of way, because we're looking at a single point in time by studying the histology of the pancreas. Um, there are techniques being developed, particularly by colleagues in NPOD and, and others to use pancreatic slices to look at immune cell movements and so on through the pancreas. But again, one runs the, into the different difficulty there of the age at which the, um, the specimen comes or with the patient and um, whether or not there are many B cells present. Um, but uh, that is an interesting question, an important question. What's the origin of those cells? What's their phenotype? And why are they um, homing into the eyelids? What are the chemotactic signals that they're responding to? Yeah. And I, I mean, you, I mean, you could even, even imagine they could have another outpost, uh, you know, the, uh, the appendix comes to mind because that's <laughs> kind of a really, you know, um, I've read some literature that uh, early onset uh, type one diabetes patients uh, also sometimes have a inflammation of the appendix, maybe not to bursting, but there's some activity going on there. So it's kind of, it's just sort of, it's very interesting. Yeah, that's a, that's a fascinating idea. I must admit, that's not one that I've pursued at all. And maybe we'll need to give that some further thought. So thank you. Oh, well, good. Anything to pu push the ball <laughs> forward here? I don't know. I mean, some of these ideas are probably out there, but I just want to, you know, because I, I, I'm very interested in running them by, um, you know, sci expert scientists like yourself, because you have such a deep knowledge of this space. I also wanted to ask you about rituximab. You know, that's the anti-CD20 um, yep. that delays onset in the younger cohort of the T1DE, the T1D endotype number one, the younger kids. What monoclonal antibody, you know, could be considered for the other T1DE2 cohort? Um, you know, we did discuss, we sort of touched on um, teplumazab, teplumazab, <laughs> another tongue twister. Yep. Um, but what do, you, what do you thought? Think about that. Well, I think, as I said, the the thing that's characteristic of both endotypes is the CD8 T cells. And the, I think it's still a moot point as to the extent to which they are actually doing the killing. But if one assumes that that's a likely scenario, then obviously they must be cells that are ripe for targeting. And it may be that tipluzumab is is gaining access to that pool of cells. And that might work in, in both groups of patients. Um, the, the, the rituximab story is an interesting one because obviously the observations about the early or the younger patients being more susceptible were made before we had come across the idea that there might be different pools of B cells in the islet. But the two things seem to uh, you know, intersect rather nicely as offering an explanation as to why rituximab may work most effectively in the young. But if it does, um, and that is the explanation, it also suggests that the B cells are 
active in the destructive process. They're not simply there as some bystander in some bystander role. Um, and one of the things we've been looking at most recently is the interaction, physical interaction between B cells and CD8 T cells, which is not something that people think about very often. But we seem to see situations in and around the islets where the cells are in very close apposition. So whether B cells are revving up the CD8 T cells to, um, you know, carry out the killing is an interesting idea and may suggest that depleting the B cells is a good way to go, at least in the yeah. younger children. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. So just um, sort of you know, try to, yeah, try to knock those, those down once you figure out exactly what their profile is. Indeed. Uh, because they're unusual. I mean, what is the, in terms of the synapse, the immunological synapse though, that's very curious that the, um, a B lymphocyte would be, you know, kind of interacting with the T cell in this um, landscape. What, are there any other disease states where this does happen in the autoimmune world or at other, other places? There are rather few places where I think there are CD8 B cell interactions described. Um, one of the thing, reasons for that may be that it's very difficult to study, particularly in histological samples, because the synapses such as they are, are formed transiently in many cases, and the cells are very mobile. So catching them in the act is quite a difficult thing to do. Um, and we've worked quite hard to understand whether the points of contact we see are just chance random bumping into one another or whether they really are functional um, if you can use the word synapses and that's uh, we're get, gaining the impression that they are but I think there's still a lot of work to be done to verify that hypothesis. Yeah there are two um, two companies that come to mind one is Jove um, they it, they have this um, they can image the uh, human immunological synapse and the other one is photonics. They have AI yep. microscopy. Indeed. Indeed. And uh, yeah, we've thought about some of those kinds of approaches and uh, have been trying to apply high resolution confocal approaches to look at the synapses or such to ask the question, are there synapses? And that's work that's ongoing still. And and with those technologies, though, do you imagine that these would um, the best place to sort of visualize this kind of interaction would be um, in, in a mouse or what kind of system would be best for it? That's a really important question. Um, one thing we haven't really touched on is the fact that we really felt from very early in our studies that the mouse models don't recapitulate very accurately the human situation. And when we first applied for funding to do some of our work, people said, oh, you don't need to, it's been done in the mouse. We know what happens. Um, actually, the two are very different. And I think personally, we need to do human studies in human, but that's a really difficult task if one's going to envisage, uh, sorry, visualize some of those um, those events happening deep inside the pancreas. There are imaging techniques being developed, but at the moment, 
they're nowhere near sensitive enough to allow us to get that kind of resolution. Um, so uh, that's maybe where the, uh, the technology needs to be heading to give us better imaging techniques, more higher resolution techniques so that we can study the pancreas in situ. That may be some way off, I suspect. Yeah, excellent point. I think, um, you know, I mean, you can imagine maybe also a partnership with EPIDA, um, you know, the transplant surgeons and maybe yep. accessing, um, you know, accessing some of the material, the tissue you need. Uh, yeah, indeed. With them. Yeah, and that's something we're exploring, certainly in the UK, with a, an initiative um, which is known as QUAD, which is a transplant system, and uh, getting fresh pancreas tissue from uh, organ donors by those routes and learning about developmental aspects of the normal pancreas that we don't understand very well before we can even apply our understanding of type 1 diabetes. I, I recently spoke to uh, Hans Solinger. He is um, at University of Pittsburgh. He's a pancreatic mm -hmm. transplant surgeon, and he's starting a new company um, called Insulin. But they, they are talking about doing a lot of testing in diabetic dogs. And, um, you know, I don't know if that's a model that you might consider looking for these beta cells. Yeah, that, that's an interesting one, too. Um, to my, the best of my understanding, the analyses that have been done in dogs suggest, again, that the, the in, insulitis is really quite different from that seen in human. And there are suggestions that there, it's really uh, quite difficult to find insulitis in dogs that spontaneously develop diabetes. Of course, transplant systems may be rather different and may offer a different potential. Um, so I think one has to consider all possible animal models, but do so with an open skepticism too. Yeah. And I mean, I guess the last question I have about this model is, is there a way to replicate this in the dish? Can you get um, perhaps a slice and then try to test it with, um, you know, a, a slice of a, uh, from a donor, um, a, a diabetic donor, and then test different um, beta cell um, populations on, on it and see how they respond. I think that's a route that we need to explore um, still further. And indeed, it is one that we're, we're pursuing in collaboration. But again, the, the, in vitro systems are so difficult to, to set up in a way that recapitulates in vivo. That may sound like an obvious thing to say, but if you think about taking out islets, first of all, you're disrupting their entire blood supply. And we don't know whether the immune cells typically would be rooted in through the capillaries or whether they're coming from elsewhere in the pancreas. But if, if we're disrupting their blood supply, that's an tricky issue. We're also taking out their nerves. Um, we're removing the surrounding acinar cells. And then we're putting in um, a, a pool of immune cells that we've probably self-selected in some way. So there are all kinds of caveats. But I think that those experimental systems at least allow us to ask single individual questions. And we are trying to exploit those to understand something about the presentation of islet antigens um, by the beta cells. Um, yeah. But we've still got a way to go. 
Sorry, I misspoke back there. I said beta cells, but I meant B cells, B lymphocytes. Yeah, yes, I guess I guess in the dish you could really be focused on the this immunological synapse and trying to dissect that. But yeah, I see. I mean, you it's really it's such a complicated landscape to try to recapitulate that in the dish is is it is crazy it difficult. Is. It um, is. And the, the pancreatic slice method that as we talked about a few minutes ago, maybe well offer some advantages there because you can study things in their in-situ context. How do you imagine these findings, this new endotype, um, you know, finding, translating to the clinic in a timely manner? I mean, we talked about the whole idea of like, okay, now we have different um, monoclonal antibody approaches. Uh, Is there anything else that might uh, spring out of that, of this, of, you know, this new um, understanding of endotypes? Yeah, I think um, what it does suggest is that um, we need to think very carefully about immunotherapeutic options and select the patient groups very carefully. One of the things about clinical trials that have been done for obvious reasons is they tend to focus on older age groups. Um, And there's good reason why we don't necessarily want to do clinical trials in very young children, but they may be giving us misleading information about what will work effectively in young children. So um, there's a UK immunotherapy consortium, which we in Exeter are part of, and we're using some of our insights to try to inform the clinical approaches that are being considered for intervening to slow the rate of Um, of C-peptide decline in individuals. My guess is you have to understand the endotype in order to achieve that successfully. Yeah, well said. And I think that's a great initiative. I mean, we've talked to um, Inish Doherty here at the CPATH Institute in in Arizona, and he heads up the diabetes section. And he, they're really uh, motivated and focused on designing the right trials for the right COVID. Absolutely. That's and exactly really going it. To drive things, you know, I think, and, and what you're saying is, is just totally right on um, that, you know, on that point too. I wondered okay. if you're looking for team members, postdocs, uh, you did say collaborators <laughs> earlier, you're open to that, but um, you know, is there any, um, are there any spots at your laboratory? It seems like a really exciting place to be. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, we're always keen to, to welcome new folks. We've got a team in, in our particular group of about 15 people or so, range of postdocs and principal investigators, PhD students. And so we're always keen for people with fellowship ideas and um, ambitions to think about joining us. And I'd be delighted to hear from folks. Fantastic. Um, and I'm sure you'll get a few um, outreach um, emails. Well, I hope so. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. We so appreciate your time. Thank you, Monica. It's a pleasure to speak. <laughs>